Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Kennedy, Reagan, Obama, and other politicians have referred to the USA as a city on the hill, a declaration of American exceptionalism, and a beacon of hope for the world. We are the pinnacle of democracy. Oh, really? What about our pattern of voter suppression, the lopsided influence of money in politics, our systematic lack of proportional representation, an electoral college system inconsistent with the popular vote, and a Democratic and Republican stranglehold on our elections that exclude all influence of third-party participation? Please don't kid yourself. We don't do democracy very well. Let's discuss. Well, warm greetings. We are meeting with uh, Teresa Amato today. And Teresa, we, uh, Greg and I read your book, just absolutely loved it. We'll talk a little bit of, about it in a second. But some background, you went to um, Harvard and then got a law degree from New York University Law School. And you have been active in political advocacy and worked on Ralph Nader's campaign back in the 2000s. And you wrote this book that we both just really, really enjoyed. It's called The Grand Illusion, The Myth of Voter Choice and the Two-Party System. And we were chatting a little bit before you got on. I, you could have written this book last month. It's so, even though it's a couple of years old, the concepts of the dysfunction in our political system are laid out very, very well, specifically related to this two-party issue. So glad to have you on our show. Thank you, Pat and Greg. It's good to be here. Uh, I I did write the book to to preserve history in many ways, uh, but we see history repeating itself because not enough people work in between elections to fix the electoral system. So the book is absolutely still relevant today. Of course, I could have written an, another chapter, an epilogue to update it, but I haven't done that yet. Uh, but history is, um, unfortunately, uh, as predicted, we have candidacies that are just getting worse and worse, and we don't have enough people participating in parties outside the two parties uh, in order to have a vibrant democracy. And you got to hang out with Ralph Nader, who's one of my heroes. I don't know, Greg, are you, have you met Ralph Nader before? I have not, but of course, uh, I was active in the Green Party during those campaigns and I supported him and um, he did quite well, uh, but I really admire his integrity. I think of people who have run, he's the cleanest politician we've probably seen in my lifetime. He's uh, he's squeaky clean. And in 94, I, he's still out. He's still out there. He's on Democracy Now! after the first Republican debate, uh, making fun of Chris Christie, complaining that Joe Biden is sleeping with a um, with the teacher, uh, which is, you know, showing you how crazy our politics are. So but uh, still has a voice. Oh, yes. He has a radio show every week, an hour-long show, uh, ralphnader.org. Um, you can uh, look it up. And he also writes a column weekly. And he reads, he's a, he's a voracious reader. And it was my great privilege to work with him for um, 
over 25 years and still do in some ways. So yeah. uh, I ran both of those campaigns as the national campaign manager in 2000 and 2004 and also served in a legal capacity as well. But I was not prepared for the kind of uh, legal onslaught the campaigns faced. And right. I really, uh, I really got into detail on some of those uh, in the book to give people a flavor of what it's like when the two parties, either one or the other, perceives you to be a threat and cause unpredictability in the election, uh, what they will do to make sure that you don't get on the ballot and voters don't have a choice to vote for you. So we were talking a little bit before you got on the, uh, before we started taping, we were, we're kind of all have our roots in Chicago in a little bit, but you're in D.C. now. And tell me about your political advocacy. You were the founder of Citizens Works. Uh, tell me a little bit about Citizens Works and what they're. Sure. I was the founder of the Citizen Advocacy Center. Ralph Center started Citizen Works, but I was the first executive director. The Citizen Advocacy Center, and I should say all of my political opinions uh, should not be ascribed to any nonprofit organization or others with whom you know I'm affiliated. Um, the a citizen Advocacy Center, I started back in almost uh, 30 years ago, come November, and we will be celebrating our 30th anniversary. And it's the, the center is uh, a model of community lawyering, and it works in uh, local communities in the western suburbs of Chicagoland, where I'm from. And public interest lawyers help people have a more effective voice in governance in, in local issues that come up. It's not a legal aid center. It's more uh, on questions of public concern. So if somebody wants to know whether the tax increment financing district is appropriate or how to get a stop sign put up at the end of the block, uh, or should we really be giving tax breaks to the car dealerships or some other kinds of issues, um, they can visit the Citizen Advocacy Center and public interest lawyers will be able to, um, usually be able to assist them in some way, uh, especially with the democratic protocols, like the ability to get, the ability to get, uh, the ability to get uh, public information, the ability to get on the ballot, the ability to understand what's happening in you know various town halls or any unit of local government, which the center also tends to watchdog. So let's let's jump into your book. Um, I guess there's a, a, a the prominent theme of your book is how the two party system has a stranglehold on our democracy and continually puts obstacles in front of any voice outside that two-party system. Um, and you go through a wide variety of ways in which they do this, ballot access. Um, um, we are, are we one of the only major democracies that just has no voice other than a two-party system is anybody as bad as we are with with, the, with this part of our democracy well of course there's many contenders that are undemocratic but we are the only ones with this particular uh, system and since uh, and no one has really adopted it since so uh, we like to think in the united states that we're the beacon of democracy and we are a great democratic uh, experiment, uh, but 
certain features of our electoral system uh, are, you know, don't translate and um, haven't been copied, uh, even with countries that have become more recent democracies, say in the last hundred years. Uh, and in particular, you can look at, um, well, you can look at Europe, for example, and see how they have uh, organized themselves. Nobody has adopted the U.S. system. Now, the, there are many reasons for that, and you know, and I'm not advocating that anyone should. I'm just pointing out that we have somewhat of a Byzantine system. What was great, you know, in the 1700s when we were thinking about becoming a nation, but uh, it has shown itself not to work effectively in terms of. Uh, be, being able to maximize uh, voter and citizen participation to facilitate that. Instead, you know, we have a situation where we don't have, you know, half the people don't vote most of the time. And that's even worse at local levels. You know, you can get single digit turnout for some local elections because people aren't given the civic skills. They're not taught how to participate effectively. And I really believe that voting is a byproduct of people who are already engaged in their communities and want a certain outcome so that they can, you know, continue to be engaged and, and solve problems. We have so many problems that could be solved uh, if people had a more effective role in, in um, our, our local governments, in our state governments, in our national government, and had, um, you know, a, a real citizen movement behind uh, advocating for some of those uh, solutions. And unfortunately, we have a lot of passive passivity and no um, leaders who are facilitating participation, which is really what needs to happen at all levels of government. You know, one thing I got from your book is we, we don't have a uniformed um, federal model for elections. It's, it's given to the states. And depending upon the states, they do a pretty good job of kind of ensuring that the people in power are going to stay in power. Um, one of this is trying to get somebody on the ballot in a state. You yeah. the, and, and you went through in detail in your book of all the states with their different rules and some people allowing write-in votes, some not. Uh, you know, 40,000 signatures in Oklahoma to get on the ballot, and then they go, and those are valid signatures. There's a difference between a signature and what is deemed a valid signature. T tell me a little bit about uh, whether or not that is getting worse uh, as states are showing more gerrymandering and power, or is it just the way it's always been? I don't know. What's, what's your thought? Is the trajectory going in the right way? Well, n no, <laughs> I, or certainly not at the speed that it should be uh, going. The, the ballot access system, I think a lot of people don't recognize that there are 50 separate state laws in the District of Columbia. And each state, of course, has their own legislature that has created their ballot access law. And that legislature is generally made up of who? Members of the two parties. And members of the two parties are not exactly interested in increasing competition for their own position in power. And so yeah, I equate this uh, 50 state plus the District of Columbia uh, ballot access scheme, the aggregate rules that you have to 
follow are really nothing short of a hazing process to remove political competition and to prevent other ideas in the national discourse or the local discourse. And the idea that the states are controlling um, each one, a separate different uh, uh, set of laws that affects federal elections makes it extraordinarily uh, difficult. Now, it's not just the ballot access system, which we could talk about for hours on end, and I certainly um, described it in detail in the book, uh, But because it's everything from obtaining the electors, obtaining a vice presidential pick, doing a correct political petition. In some states, you can call yourself an independent. In other states, you have to call yourself unaffiliated. You know, there's all these curly cues where the staple has to go, what time it has to be turned in. Nothing is the same. And uh, from one state to the other, it's extraordinarily complicated for somebody who's trying to get on the ballot in all 50 states and run a national presidential campaign outside of the two parties, be it whether you're a minor party or third party candidate or an independent. It's oftentimes most difficult for somebody to run as an independent. In addition to the ballot access situation, you also have the partisan administration of government. Uh, and whoever is in charge, be it of the election board or the um, attorney general's office or the board of, you know, the state board of elections, uh, oftentimes they're partisans. Uh, you know, they're the, they're the chairperson of one of the two parties' campaigns in that state, which is incredible. Uh, and people don't believe that it has, um, that the, the partisanship of the uh, administration of elections it can affect how a candidate may or may not get on the ballot. New rules can be made up. Uh, different procedures can be instituted. And you see um, champions for one of the two major parties, and it's often to um, uh, make it more difficult for a third party or a independent candidate. In addition to the partisanship and the ballot access, then you have difficulties in these candidacies uh, with the media, with the presidential debates, with the campaign finance system. And we could talk about all of these, whatever you'd like. Yeah, when when you were describing all of the, it's not just this, it's not just the signatures. It's the amount of, it's the time frame of how much time they have. It's the each of these. Um, some states are more um, aggressive and throwing people off. There's no real much more process. It it truly is a cartel designed to keep these two party systems in power in each of these states, some worse than, than others. Um, yes, some, some are, uh, some are at the level where the, they should be. They require you to show a modicum of support uh, and a reason to be on the ballot, but others uh, use this as, as I said before, hazing process. And I don't think uh, people understand unless maybe uh, I say when, you know, the, if you have a large family and trying to get everyone to sign your birthday card to give to mom or dad or something like that, um, the uh, it, it just hurting your own family might be difficult. Um, trying to stand on the corner with a clipboard and pen and oftentimes some sort of signature or 
placard uh, that identifies you as a petition circulator, and uh, you, you know, in the in the 21st century, is just preposterous. Most people don't have some earbuds, you know, in their ears, or, or they're walking, and they don't want to stop for somebody holding a clipboard. That almost never happens, uh, right. and so it's very difficult. And on top of that, you have to make sure that they're registered voters. Some people think they're a registered voter or embarrassed to say they're not a registered voter or they moved and you know they're off the rolls and it's as you mentioned before the uh, you have to collect a certain number of signatures and let's put it in perspective it's tens of thousands in some states in some states there's 100 200,000 and the aggregate is uh, and that's valid signatures and you have a lot of people who will sign mickey mouse or some other kind of thing or destroy your petition signatures you've already collected by instead of signing their name just crossing out everybody else so there's also all kinds of sabotage that goes on in the field and uh, if they don't uh, care for your candidacy it can even get quite ugly with uh, uh, we had to even train people in de-escalation de of you know um, tensions okay greg you were you were a ralph nader um person or advocate uh, tell us about that you, you you did all of this right did you stand yeah, with the clipboard? I did. It, was, it was it was painful to hear Teresa tell the story because i've been there with uh, a clipboard and uh i've done it not just for uh, uh the green party or nader but many years many decades before that at different candidates independent candidates and uh you know the first thing in pennsylvania you, you got to identify them as a registered voter so you you don't want to waste time. You want to just say, are you a registered voter? You get to look like, why are you bothering me? You know, <laughs> what, what kind of question is that? But you have to ask it. And then the worst part of it is when you get someone enthusiastic for your candidate, they want to talk about it, but you've got to move on. It's just, it's, it's really just drudgery going forward and being turned down. And, and it, it's absolutely uh, a joke. I mean, it's a joke that people have to go through this. It's sort of ironic that in a country that prides itself in the number of choices you have. Imagine if you had two choices for a television channel, two kinds of pants that you could wear, two colors of car you could buy. People would be outraged, but they have two choices in the political frame, and yet they just, you know, mull along and live with it. It's just insanity. Yes, Greg, let me say thank you, because I know how grueling it is to stand on a corner for five hours, eight hours, or or collect signatures at a fest, and you have to make sure everybody's uh, registered and, uh, and it's hot, and you have to do it quickly because maybe you have to collect 75,000 signatures in 45 days, and you have to make sure they didn't vote in the primary too, or you have to read them some sort of uh, intimidating sounding, you know, uh, message and, disc and and qualification about what it means to sign the signature uh, uh, petition. Um, at, at, and it's just a, uh, a process, you know, in, in a day and age where we buy everything, uh, you know, with we can buy things and have it delivered the same day or go to the bank and put in our card and get money dispensed or, you know, tap on something to buy anything at any local store. Uh, the idea that we have to do this insane pe petition collection process with clipboard and uh, petition and, and pen uh, is just outrageous. 
it needs to go. It absolutely needs to go. And it has to be modernized in order for it to facilitate other voices uh, and other choices on people's ballots. Teresa, you remind me of one of the uh, ridiculous parts of a Pennsylvania petition. They'll have a space, which is about half an inch wide, and it'll ask you to put the name of your, your city. And you have to print it out. You can't put an abbreviation. And there's no room for it. I mean, this is calculated. This is not an accident. Absolutely. You look at it and you see a little bigger box for the uh, zip code. And 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 you don't have enough room to put all the information that you must have on there. And so you've got to school your the person you approach with getting it exactly right, because otherwise it'll be scratched. It'll be that's it'll be absolutely scratched. true. I'm glad you brought that up, Greg, because these are the requirements that the state imposes on the candidacy in order to uh, be able to get on the ballot. And they're so uh, ridiculous, so much minutia. So then people can challenge those signatures, even if they you collect them and collect all the information in the small boxes and whatnot, if you signed it the wrong way. If in other words, you registered as Timothy Smith or and and um, you wrote Tim Smith instead right. and or they can say well gee your signature doesn't quite look like uh, what you signed back when you were 18 and registered to vote <laughs> oh sorry you're 50 now and your signature has changed a little bit uh, we don't think that's valid and so they can cross it out for that I mean and then tens of um, you know tens of people have to sit there at the ballot uh, uh, scrutiny stage. Sometimes, for example, in Pennsylvania, uh, a court goes through all of those, and you can imagine how thrilled the judge is to have to uh, listen to all this minutia. And we had to we had to appear in ten different courtrooms uh, in Pennsylvania just to protect the signatures. And so the the difficulty that goes into it. For people who say that, oh, these candidates are running for vanity or whatever, they have no idea, no idea the amount of effort that has to go to get these candidates on the ballot uh, in state after state. We had Norm Finkelstein on um, couple, you know, a couple months ago, and and uh, we've been following him carefully. And, and he's, you know, he's a huge fan of... Um, west um cornell west and describes him as just having an intellect that is far superior to his which is hard to believe because norm finkelstein is a very smart man and just how right on the money he is with politics and with his writing with his history i love cornell west west i've, I've read some of his stuff he, he's just he's just a wonderful person what happens if I vote for Cornell West? You know, he there's no. It's essentially not voting for any. It's it's essentially taking my vote out. I might as well not vote. Um, we've we now have this system where maybe I can vote in Washington State because I'm not a swing state. But if I'm in Pennsylvania, it's going to be it's it's going to be a, a horrible decision to vote for him. We we get to a point where even voting for a third party candidate is essentially a problem based on how we do the winner takes take all uh system i i'm not, i'm not being very articulate with this but is that what are your thoughts about what are your thoughts about that well 
I believe that every candidate needs to earn their votes, and I believe people should be able to vote for a candidate and not necessarily the lesser of two evils in terms of their choices. And so therefore, by offering more candidacies uh, on the ballot, we expand the franchise. We expand the ability for people to vote uh, for who they want to represent them at any level of local, uh, you know, at any level of government. And so uh, I, I too have met Cornell, Dr. Cornell West. Um, he was a big supporter in 2000 for the Ralph Nader, uh, Winona LaDuke campaign. And uh, he was running on the Green Party line, but has decided to run as an independent. And so I hope he gets on the ballot in as many states as possible, because I know what difficulties face both him and uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., for that matter. Yeah, I've I voted, uh, uh, I think, I can't remember when I voted for someone in the two major parties. I mean, it's, and I and I resent when people, Democrats tell me you wasted your vote or, or uh, you know, that's, you're not saying anything, you're just, it's lost. I don't see it as lost at all. I see that as the essential and necessary condition for moving beyond where we are. And so I happily, I will happily vote for, uh, for West, uh, uh, I don't know who I'd vote for if he doesn't get on the ballot, but I'll vote for somebody outside the two-party system, and I proudly do it, because I think it's an insult to me, a personal insult to me, to to impose that on me. You know how people get indignant because you, you're supposed to buy this product, or you're supposed to do this, and you want to do what you want to do. Well, I want to do what I want to do, and I want to do it in the political realm just as I do everywhere else. I don't want to be... Uh, uh, told that I'm wasting my vote. I resent it. Well, I agree. I agree completely with that. And the problem, as uh, Pat pointed out, is that we have the first past the post system, the winner take all system, that um, even if 49% of the people in a state want a particular candidate, and um, uh, 50%, you know, 51% want someone else, and uh, all the votes go to the the majority winner and that problem needs to be fixed and we have to i believe come up with a system of proportional representation so that we don't box ourselves into being red states or blue states where the landscape is that these these elections have uh, less and less uh, choice on the ballot. You have one party rule in many states because people don't even want to run or they don't, you know, they don't train to run uh, on any other party ticket, the other major party or minor or third party candidacy, uh, candidate, candidate lines. And so it's incredibly important to facilitate public participation in other parties and to include people because they keep uh, becoming more and more disgusted with showing up to vote and never having their vote uh, end up with a winning candidate or their considerations reflected by the people who represent their state. And we have to work on that system. It's not going to change itself. But if more and more people say, oh, I just want to vote for the winner, or I'm throwing away my vote, or uh, I, don't, I don't want to be a spoiler, then the system will never change. You have to have people out there exercising their right to vote for who they want to vote for. I loved your chapter on um, what was it? The debate system sucks or something. Which you were or the the commission commission the debate commission, and 
all of the shenanigans that you had to try to get Ralph on a platform where he would be able to be heard uh, and the dirty tricks and the lawsuits. Um, I, that uh, Tell us about the MasterCard problem you had with, with Ralph and one of your commercials and how as you were trying to get more publicity for him to get you know to get him access to the debate stage tell him about that I, I didn't know about that problem oh yes one day um yeah well we had we had made a a little uh, commercial really uh, for the campaign and it was done by bill's bill hillsman and northwood's um studio there and he had he had done many other progressive and snazzy uh, um, pieces for other progressive candidates and uh, it was based on the uh, MasterCard's um, uh, yeah, priceless campaign and uh, we uh, did it uh, 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 as has so many others you know I've seen cards and uh, greeting cards that have done the same sort of thing um, uh, taking the MasterCard um, priceless campaign and then putting in their own words to apply to their own uh, candidate or product or sentiment and the um, and, and there were hundreds of them so MasterCard decided that we needed to stop airing that because people might be confused they said as if Ralph were somehow uh in any way analogous or uh, confusing <laughs> in his whole career uh, that he would be, you know, supporting a, a credit card company or um, it's just, it was just um, priceless. Well, they, 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 they threatened to sue us and they did sue us and they threatened to sue us. And I said, okay, pretty much make my day because we're going to air this and we are within our constitutional rights to air it. And we continue to do so. So they sued us on a variety of um, trademark and copyright uh, counts, infringements. And at the end of the day, which was a lawsuit with all kinds of um, you know procedures, uh, we won on all counts. And I'm glad we stood our ground. Uh, I don't like to be bullied by any major corporation. Uh, you can imagine how much Ralph Nader uh, wants to be bullied by a corporation and we um, uh, we stood our ground and the piece was great and really it was one of those cases where we weren't going to run the piece much longer uh, but they decided to give it so much more play airplay you know it was on nighttime television people kept running it uh, because MasterCard sued us and that's you know the Barbara uh, Streisand effect Barbara Streisand effect yeah, mm -hmm. to a certain extent. That was the other thing that I thought was interesting too is trying to get on these debate stages. And Ralph was given a ticket and showed up at one of the hearings, was being threatened to be arrested if he came into the debate. Uh, wasn't even the main debate floor, it was a viewing area. Yes. I, these people are. Golly, that, that's that's hardball when you can Yes. So let's set the let's set the framework because a lot of people still think that the League of Women Voters runs uh, run the presidential <laughs> debates because they had done so for many years. Uh, and uh, but that all changed when the Democratic 
Party and the Republican Party decided to create for themselves a nonprofit organization called the Commission on Presidential Debates. And the, that commission, uh, which started out uh, self-described as bipartisan, is, is now and is supposed to be nonpartisan, but it's typically run by um, party people, right? They set the uh, quote-unquote objective standards by which they will allow someone to participate in a presidential debate. Now, the reason it's important to participate in a presidential debate is because it's around Labor Day and it's when people start, most Americans start paying attention to the presidential campaign. All of the stuff that happens for a year, two years, sometimes four years in advance, you know, then becomes much more um, uh, relevant as people realize they have to pay attention to figure out who they're going to vote for. And so the presidential debates, because it's nationally televised, reaches tens of millions of people, something that a small candidacy has a difficult time of doing if they had to go. I mean, there's no way to replicate that kind of immediate exposure. And the, the criteria that the debate commission sets is one that uh, requires you to have a uh, uh, 15% average in five or more polls that they determine what those polls are, that you're electorally viable, that, you know, um, that you've, you know, uh, done this or that. And uh, they set those provisions and they're so high that no one qualifies for them uh, if, for outside of the two parties. They made the mistake once of letting Ross Perot qualify, and they made sure they never did allow that to happen again. And in our case in 2000, it was not only Pat, uh, not only Ralph, but also Pat Buchanan, uh, who, you know, people wanted to see by majority, of, you know, in polls, they wanted to see Pat Buchanan and Ralph Nader on the debate stage. And there are all kinds of ways to set up debates. We don't have to set it up with the presumption that there will only be two people that are um, that are presentable as candidates to the American public. You could set up debates like they do for primaries. Uh, you can winnow. You, so maybe you give everybody a chance to be on the first presidential debate and then say, okay, the next time we're only going to go with the top four or three or two. Uh, you know, you don't have to set it up so that it totally excludes because the ability to reach people through the debates uh, can change an election. Look at Jesse Ventura and what happened for him in Minnesota, when he was able to reach so many people through the through the gubernatorial debates, he ended up winning. I thought the League of Women Voters were involved with it. They haven't been for years, but now they're. It's almost a Saturday Night Live skit uh, when you hear people that one last bait that the Republicans with them talking over each other for a good sixty seconds with no one being able to. Um, you know I. It's not truly a forum where people get their ideas out. It's such short sound bites. It's just trying to be a theater of attention grabbers. I, they don't function very well. I don't know. It's embarrassing. Yeah, it's, it's embarrassing. And uh, the American voters deserve better. They deserve a better system to be able to understand the substantive platforms of the people who are actually up for any particular position. And uh, what what is presented, it does not allow for that. And we need to come up with better ideas of how to facilitate public participation and understanding of actual substantive positions instead of, and I blame uh, in part the press for this, the fourth estate, for uh, 
mainly looking at minor party candidates and independent candidates as quote unquote fringe candidates. Somehow they're kooky or they're, you know, they're not worthy of public attention. When in fact, in US history, it's been minor party and in, you know, it's been people outside of the two parties who have brought forth ideas that have actually changed the course of our country. Abolition would be one of those ideas that was not popular in the beginning. Women's suffrage would be another one of those ideas that was not popular either. Well, and people who had positions were considered outside of the mainstream. This was not, you know, something that should be talked about. They had to go from place to place, community hall to community hall and give speeches this is pre-internet, right? And mm-hmm. and pre-cell phone and everything else. And they had to reach the public directly that way in order to convince and change the hearts and minds of people about what kind of um, uh, democracy we needed to have in terms of enfranchising, um, uh, enfranchising um, more people to be able to participate. Now, uh, the press however, just covers everything like a horse race. And all they care about is, will somebody take votes away, a a phrase I just uh, can't abide because uh, people have to earn their votes. You shouldn't assume that one of the two major parties actually has the vote and therefore anyone else who comes along is taking it away where those people are earning the votes. They're not taking away someone else's votes. They're earning their votes. And and so too must the two parties. And so press that talks about, quote, spoilers of an already spoiled electoral process that's not enhancing public participation um, and uses that kind of word and I, I just find it uh, like another form of bigotry, practically, or political apartheid in how the press treats uh, these candidacies. And, you know, people who have read history and know the effect, for example, of uh, uh, Debs running and uh, on worker Debs. rights and why you have the rights you have today, in large part, these, these ideas are offered up and one of the two major parties adopts them and then they become law and we are a better country in most respects for that kind of discourse that has opened people's minds to how to better run and be a more perfect union. And then we almost got that with Bernie, didn't we? Until the, he got a, he just got crushed by his own party, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. And, and Pat, you reflect on that. It's not just the externalities that Teresa has explained so well, the fact that the third party or new ideas can't get inside of our electoral system it's within our electoral system that it's equally bankrupt. So someone like Bernie is is uh, is iced. I mean, he he didn't have a chance. I mean, who, who are we kidding? I mean, he he ran up some numbers, and South Carolina comes along, and suddenly they announce that he's losing, and he is. Right. Or 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 you know, uh, <laughs> and and why is that? Well, the answer, of course, is is manyfold, but primarily money. I mean, yeah. that's why I I think really we we are past a point where we can really change this. We're not, we don't have a, a shortage of good ideas. We have great ideas about how to reform it. You can find him in the book, Grand Illusion. Uh, Lanny Guignier was someone who developed a bunch of very original creative ideas about the electoral system. So we've got the genius there. We don't have the means. And we don't have the means because of money. 
and technology. The technology today, I mean, I loved hearing about Debs. I mean, I've admired Debs so much. I also know the history of the 30s and the impact of, but this was retail politics in the old days where you knocked on doors, where you went on a, a bandstand or you went wherever you, people would hear you and talk. Today it's television, it's cable, it's advertising. And what, what drives that? Money. So I think the answer has to be found ultimately. These are all necessary conditions of having a democracy because I don't think we have one, but they're not sufficient conditions. And they only become sufficient when we find a way of attacking power and money. So I don't know, those are my thoughts. Teresa, you, you, your thoughts? Yes, well, uh, well put, Greg. And what, you know, the public owns the airwaves. Most people don't understand that it, the airwaves are part of the public commons and they are regulated, but we have the capacity as a people to go say, we want different regulations. We want regulations that gives free airtime to candidates. We want regulation that will help build other parties and help expose the ideas of other people. You may not like those ideas. I don't like all of those I, uh, the ideas I hear. I like many of the ideas I hear, but um, you know, it, it's about whether or not you have a system that will facilitate the at least the exposure of that those ideas that where you can have innovation, you can have um, you know rejuvenation of uh, your political parties. But you can't do that in a closed system that is not opened up, restructured to facilitate other people's participation. Now, you talked about money. Of course, money <laughs> is at the root of, of politics. And um, a lot of people who are elected have to spend many parts of their days making phone calls, raising money, because the cost of campaigns has become so prohibitive that it has... Um, it has kept many good people from running and uh, they can't find the way to run. There's no system built that will support small starts and small parties like they, some other countries do. They say, if you get uh, this amount uh, of money, you know, or this amount of votes, um, we will help fund the creation of your party. And they do that through the government, you know, so there are ways around it. There are ways to reform the finance uh, campaign finance system. The somebody I've said this before has to go through the Federal Election Commission's rules and regulations because, first of all, they're not written with a third party or independent candidacy in mind, and they're uh, over inclusive. They're under inclusive. There's all kinds of problems there, and and often the people administrating them don't know the answer because they never thought about it in the context of a third party or a. Um, uh, or an independent candidate. Uh, then there was something else you touched on, Greg, that I wanted to go back to, which was, um, let me see, uh, you were talking about, um, in addition to money, the... Um, technology? Well, yes, technology. the, the technology... Yes, we, we have so much, so much technology. There's no reason why we can't make it easier for candidates. You could do the ballot access through online petitioning you could do uh can't you could do uh, campaigns uh through you could have you know candidates being able to talk just as if they were in uh, the presidential campaigns through a series i mean we just need to put a little creativity in here into how to facilitate that kind of participation but there is no will to do so and that is the problem because the two parties control 
the system, both the electoral process, both at the um, local, at the state level and at the federal level, and they're not interested in having other voices that can somehow create unpredictability for their strategies of how they're going to go about getting reelected or electing a majority for their particular major party. The other point you made, Greg, is that even within the two parties, for example, Bernie, or, or you could take, for example, John McCain uh, on the Republican side, if the Republican Party or the Democratic Party has decided this is our front runner, Hillary Clinton, George W. Bush, whatever campaign election cycle you're thinking about, they stack their internal procedures to favor their favored candidate. And it's very difficult for the disfavored candidate to um, be able to overcome those kinds of uh, uh, presumptions against them. And that is a shame too, because even within the two parties, you don't get the kind of percolation, et cetera. Now, I think Dennis Kucinich and... Um, Others who have now decided that they're going to, uh, Dennis Kucinich, let's start with Dennis Kucinich and Bernie, you know, they had platforms that maybe I would agree with uh, several of, you know, their positions, etc. Uh, but once the prime Democratic primaries are over, their voice is not heard all the way to the general election. And so you get a Super Tuesday nominee or you've decided early um, what who the nominee for the Democratic or Republican Party is going to be. Those other voices within those parties don't get to the they're not in play. They're not heard. And so uh, the problem with um, many of the people who run in the parties is they're never willing then to go outside the party uh, so that they make sure their voice and their platform is heard all the way to election day. That's why it's so important for minor parties and independents to carry some of those ideas and to be able to participate in the process all the way through the general election. And you you had good suggestions, you know, your conclusions that rank voting, uh, better uh, control the federal government, standardizing some of these processes, uh, Having having better ballot access, uh, I don't know. That was um, you know now since since Ralph ran, we've got Citizens United, which is just supercharged this situation. Um, how how depressed are you <laughs> that you're ever going to see some of these reforms? Your common sense, you know way out of this i i don't know I, I i'm i'm frustrated are you um well i should say you know i don't operate on uh, emotions of depression and frustration because if you did you won't operate and what i want to do is put more people into the public interest pipeline uh, not just lawyers which i have done uh, but uh, in the electoral system, more people need to be aware of how they can have a role in changing their their government and how they can change this system. And it's going to take breaking some eggs. It's going to take being outside uh, of the two major parties in the way we've always done it. If you don't like how things are now, then stop doing things the way we have always done it and start to look for solutions. Pick your injustice. I mean, there are so many that need people to work on these particular problems and not just when it's a presidential campaign and people are thinking about it, but all the time, year round. This has to become a vocation for the American public uh, to participate in creating a better system where we want to participate and don't have half of us 
not even thinking about participating in many ways because they've concluded that in their state, their their voice has no chance of being heard or represented in the government. And that's a situation that I find intolerable. You know, did, have you... I'm hopeful that people will do it. So I, I have to operate with hope that uh, people see this happening. Certainly you've seen it just in, since 2000 and the degradation of our politics since 2000, right? And, uh, and if you're tired of the two choices you have, think otherwise, think outside the box, think a different way, because doing the same thing the same way is just gonna produce the same insanity, right? We have to have a better system and we have to have people working on it. You know, after your book, I, I started reading a book. Uh, have you heard of David Ferris's book? Uh, it's time to F fight dirty, how the Democrats can build a lasting majority. Have you heard of that book? I have heard of it, but I haven't read it. Well, he, you know, he starts by saying that the founding fathers had no idea that we would be clustering our voting patterns to the cities and the rural areas. And that has made it such that the average um, the average state has a six point Republican advantage because of the you know because of the way in which the rural well you know how the Senate is not disproportionate and, and so oh, forth. Senate, and, don't get me started. <laughs> oh, just, uh, uh, hor horrible. And then you have the the gerrymandering has got so effective, so that it's it's creating another stranglehold we're losing our democracy there so his his concept and this is a little bit of kind of your concept too is we just have to reform the whole thing top down and one thing he says is we need to court pack just we this, the, we uh, lost this. He, he's just dealing with the the effects and not the causes he's confusing the two the gerrymandering is a, is an effect uh, the cause is a corrupted political system that allows that to go on. And all the examples you gave, it's the effect that he's dealing with, and he's scrambling for answers, so he cut up and changed the effects. Well, of course you have to change the effects. But there's a lot to be optimistic about. If you follow the elections in the, six, in the 70s and 80s, the Jackson campaign within the Democratic Party, even Bernie's campaign, it's unfortunate the way it plays out, but before an election, you can see a turn in the Democratic Party to the left when the numbers start going bad for them because the people aren't buying what they're trying to sell. When the Democrats went big-time neoliberal, they always had to make that turn in the last few months of the election towards a more progressive position because they just didn't have the votes. But, of course, then they reneged on it, I and mean, so that's a factor. But these third-party campaigns have the same kind of effect. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but... If Nader took the election away from from uh, uh, Al Gore, so be it. I mean, what he was doing is he was forcing the Democratic Party to be more responsive to the voters, you know. And any third party candidate, if they continue and if that's their goal, will have that effect. I talked to a local candidate recently, really great guy. Unfortunately, I think he has some ambitions. He might win. Maybe he will. But I'm more excited about candidates that want to run to bring issues to the fore and change the political dynamics. And that's my optimism. That's what keeps me uh, uh, looking forward to, to political action and working with people and, and trying to get new candidates out there. Yeah, Greg, I'm glad you pointed that out because uh, in chapter three of uh, Grand Illusion, I do talk about Florida, 
and the national meme that has emerged since that somehow Ralph spoiled the election for Al Gore, when of course that was no one's uh, intent. Uh, we, as a campaign from the outset, said we were going to all 50 states and we were going to win as many votes as possible for the Green Party to um, get 5% and therefore have some uh, funding advantage in the next election. Now, the uh, book points out that there were 10 candidates on the ballot in Florida, including the two major parties, and the eight other minor party candidates uh, all got more than 537 votes. They just, the Democrats, blamed, and their affiliates, they, they blamed Ralph, and they tried to make this a lesson for all others who would follow uh, and go outside of the two-party system by saying, see, look what happened. You had somebody who goes in there, he gets 97,000 plus votes. Uh, he He's the one responsible that Al Gore Jr. hasn't uh, won Florida, even though all the other candidates received more than 537 votes. And those votes were not preordained for either George W. Bush or for Al Gore. Jr. Al Gore could not win his own home state of Tennessee. He was a sitting vice president and an incumbent who and a senator and all of that. He didn't win Bill Clinton's home state of Arkansas. He you know, he could have uh, he could have easily won the electoral count with, you know, either one of those states um if he had uh, done so. He was not an attractive candidate. And instead of saying what's wrong with the Democratic Party and what's wrong with the nominee that we put forward, uh, who was a sitting vice president and for him to lose, you know, uh, uh, you know, by this number of votes to somebody from Texas who barely could put a, uh, a whole sentence together with noun and verb in many of his uh, discourse, his discussions, it was incredibly uh, embarrassing for the Democrats. So they sought to shift the blame to the person who got the most votes, more than 537, which happened to be Ralph Nader. No one was intending for that outcome. And by the way, if you read other people within the Democratic Party's accounts, maybe the Democratic Party should have sought to count all the votes and not just certain select wow. counties where they thought they were going to have um, a better outcome. And the Republican Party, too, didn't want all the votes counted. Finally, and well, really not finally, because there's so many other uh, reasons why uh, Mr. Gore lost. Um, but overwhelmingly, you have a Supreme Court that intervened at the last minute in this and decisively made it impossible uh, for the vote counting to continue. And um, you know, we have to ask ourselves questions about how political the Supreme Court is. Yeah, I love that. Art. I learned so much from that. And you were you were right. Gore was horrible. I, I didn't realize how bad he was. I, Hillary was horrible. You know, you, you blame Hillary losing on the Russians uh, doing Facebook posts. You blame, uh, you know, Gore losing by Ralph. No, th these were bad candidates. These these were not very good candidates, and people didn't listen to that, and they tried to re revisit the history of it all, and it's not working. So, so that's true. Listen, I, I said we'd have you on for about an hour. You you are this is this has been fun. I I I love doing these podcasts because I I think I saw you on Chris Hedges. I saw your book and. 
it's just so much fun to read a book and be able to learn something and put it down and say, I, I've changed my opinion on things and that's what your book did. And it's, I, I'm going to link to your book. It's still a great book to pick up. So I highly recommend people do that. And um, I don't know, any final thoughts, Greg? No, I enjoyed this immensely. I, I expected this to be one of our, our better ones and it, it certainly was. And uh, I, I have great admiration for that book because there's a lot of books out there that tell you things, but this is something that everybody should have in their hands and they should learn about this. And, you know, again, having been out in the streets with that clipboard, I, I know what you speak. So thank you very much for that book and for, for telling that story, for telling our story, those of us that really believe in democracy and really believe that we ought to have options in this country to vote for. Yeah, I, I'm a little disappointed you're not still living in Illinois. I would love to talk to you about the University of Chicago 2022 study that ranked it Illinois as the second most corrupt state in the nation. Um, uh, I always enjoy going back and visiting Illinois and visiting with my friends and 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 finding out if the governor is in jail or not or still serving and you know those <laughs> and being from DePage County, you know what corruption corruption's about there too. So anyway. Well, you have one party rule in Cook County. You have one party rule generally in DuPage County, much more so when I started out there. Right. And yeah, that's one of the main reasons why we need to have more people participating. I'm quite hopeful that people uh, who are energized by what's in the book, because I did it to both thank the builders of democracy everywhere who participate and to use it uh, as uh, to record history to make sure we didn't lose it because the the lessons of those two campaigns 2000 and 2004 were that we have to work on the electoral process we absolutely must work on it there are of course competing uh concerns of <laughs> what we need to work on but pick an injustice go after it try to help change people's minds or get them involved because that is the only way things ever do change in our country it's from individuals we don't as uh, Tocqueville uh, nicely recorded uh, in his um, in his work about the United States uh, we are not a people who wait for government to change things for us we have to pick up the baton and go make sure that we change things to work to our advantage the advantage of all. Good. Thank you so much, Teresa. This has just been really, really fun. Thank you for having us, me, Pat, Thank Greg. Thank you.